Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, yeah. So let's, um, I'll just start with, uh, you know, we've already done our lead-ins. We already have all that recorded. So I think we can just get into, you know, the let's begin by painting a picture or whatever. We might even we might even not have to do that because we sort of have that in the can, too. But I'm, I'm happy to do that again to shake the rust off real quick. Uh, OK, yeah. Why don't we why don't we do it again? So it, it has kind of a natural flow and you don't have to piece it together. Uh, check it one, two. Hey everyone, it's Elliot. And Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today we're going to take a step back in time and into a bar from the past as we rub elbows with the beats. We may be in Greenwich Village. We could be in North Beach. Wherever our bar is for you, it's home to the hippest cats and the coolest kittens. So ask the bartender for some reasonably priced Chianti, wave the cigarette smoke away from your face, and dig the crazy scene right alongside us here in the bar. Okay, Todd, so we're talking about the beats today. So I'd like to begin by painting a picture here. Mm-mm. What like tell me what kind of picture with unicorns and stuff like that? <laughs> I love that. Tempting. I love that. I know that's how your bedroom's decorated, but now I'm mm-hmm. thinking maybe a little bit more funky, a little bit more postmodern, kind of mid-century. All right. Because hey, after all, we're we're talking about the beats, right? All right. Sounds good. I'm thinking we're gonna start by talking about one of the the pillars of the beat generation. And also one of the great works from the Beat Generation. So as I'm describing this, uh-huh. is there a person popping into your head? And maybe is there a, a piece of literature, like a title, popping into your head as we're talking? Well, so when it comes to the beats, let me yes is the answer. And let me say that I'm kind of more familiar with the literary artists right. uh, of the beats. Um, there are certainly plenty of musicians and visual artists too. Of course. But yeah, to answer the question, like the 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 guy that pops in my head is Jack Kerouac. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. Okay. And what is the work? What is the piece of literature, the book that you think of when you hear the name Jack Kerouac? Well, on the road, uh, that's the one everybody kind of points to, right? Yep, you hit the nail on the head. So I want to talk about the release of On the Road. Okay. Because that really kick-started 
a lot of the I think the movement was going on at least underground, but this really kick-started when the movement became famous or when it sort of reached uh, pop culture okay. awareness. Okay, all right. Okay, so if you'll indulge me, may I start with a quick excerpt from the book? Indulge. Okay. Ahem. 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 <laughs> okay. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Okay, as we jump in real quick. Okay, do you have your do you have your uh, sunglasses on in the bar? I got okay. my beret. Let me get okay. my beret. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. I'm ready to get my okay. snap going. Perfect. Okay. Which, by the way, we'll we'll talk about all of this because Jack Kerouac okay. never wore right. a beret. He probably wore sunglasses, but probably not at night. <laughs> so there's all, and certainly not when he was when he was writing. Uh, when he was riding on the road. Okay, so we're going to jump in really quickly with a, a quick excerpt. And this is pretty famous. Anybody who is aware of Kerak has probably heard this quote. The only people for me are the mad ones. The ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn like fabulous yellow Roman candles. Does that sound familiar? Does that ring a bell? Uh, uh, I, I'm not very familiar with it, but I can sort of I can tell by the the pattern and the rhythm of that that it it definitely is Kerouac. Yeah, yeah very jazz like, very you know the repetition. Yeah, beat, yeah, yeah. I, I love the burn, burn, burn like a fabulous yellow Roman candle. Yeah, it's great. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this book. So, On the Road was published September 5th, 1957, when Kerouac was 35 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he was staying in New York. And I know you love Greenwich Village, but in this case, he was hanging out on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. He was with a living with a woman, or at least crashing, <laughs> I don't know, with a woman named Joyce Johnson. And... A little bit after midnight, they went to a newsstand when the reviews were coming out. They go to this newsstand on 69th Street and Broadway near Johnson's apartment. And uh, they grab a copy of the New York Times as soon as, you know, I'm imagining here the um, the newspaper truck going by, the guy chomping on a wet cigar, tossing the bale of yeah. newspapers out the back, still wrapped in twine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like yeah. the smell of ink and everything. So they pull the newspaper off, get into the you know newspaper, and they start reading. They, they take it to a neighborhood bar, and they read this review over and over again. And the review is incredibly effusive. Like, this reporter, this writer named Gilbert Milstein loved On the Road. And he apparently had a little bit of uh, affection for the Beats. He kind of knew some of these dudes because they were hanging around New York, and I think he kind of had a a little bit of a, a beat on what they're all about. Mm -hmm. So he reads on the road and he, <laughs> not to put too much of a burden on Kerouac, <laughs> he refers to him as no less than, quote, the voice of a new generation, unquote. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, that usually doesn't end well. <laughs> <laughs> so they just read this review over and over and over. So Kerouac 
finally got what he wanted, right? Mm -hmm. But as he's reading this review, he's just shaking his head. And even he couldn't understand why he wasn't happier reading these words in the paper of record, right? The, the Certainly the literary cradle of the United States. Yeah, okay. Well, I can't either. I can understand why he wasn't happier with what seems like not just a glowing review, but like a, a worshiping review. So did you did you learn any more about that? Yeah, so Johnson later wrote about this experience. And basically, in her words, that night when he went to bed, he was obscure. And he was awoken the next morning by the phone ringing. And he was famous for the rest of his life. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. until he died at age 47. So, uh, I would chalk this up to the careful what you wish for, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, this, though, was one reviewer. This was one writer. Not everyone really liked what Kerouac was up to. There was an immediate backlash on the heels of this praiseworthy review, okay? And probably this is a little bit of what he anticipated, right? Uh-huh. There is another review in the New York Times by um, a freelance writer who did things for their reviews. There were others in the Atlantic Monthly, the Los Angeles Times, and Time Magazine itself. And none of these were nearly as kind. Mm -hmm. They all basically said they liked the style. The reason I read this quote is they really liked the structure. They liked the structure, like, like the cadence, but they didn't like the subject matter. They didn't like the people. Hmm. They thought, it, you know, they were a bunch of down and outs, a bunch of slackers, a bunch of low-grade criminals. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I want to also contextualize this <laughs> with a great... Um, sort of brilliant uh, cutting insult that you've probably heard before that we can credit to um, author and social uh, gadfly Truman Capote. <laughs> okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> you, I think you may know what's coming here. So, Capote had perhaps the most famous put-down of all time when it came to the book, right? Because this book was originally written on a single scroll of paper that was attached together, fed through a typewriter. So, uh, Capote famously said about on the road, well, that's not writing, that's typing, <laughs> which I thought was great. <laughs> I mean, it makes you wonder, you know, if Capote were alive today with a, with a laptop and iPads and everything else, would he still be writing longhand? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, regardless, Kerouac had become the reluctant quote unquote king of the beats. This is sort of what was ascribed to him. And, he inspired countless people in middle America to begin thinking beyond the outskirts of their hometowns and hit the road themselves to see what the world held. Mm, mm -hmm. So a revolution in middle America had truly begun. Hmm. Uh, okay, so there had to be something that the Beats were... Uh, rallying for or rallying deeply against and my uh, spidey sense says it had something to do with mainstream uh, media or some way mainstream expectations yeah definitely definitely um, expectations is a, a great word so when we generally think about the 50s in the united states 
there's kind of two, I would argue, pop culture things that really pop in at least my head, probably your head too. I would say one is Leave It to Beaver. Yeah, yeah. And the other one is uh, a movie that does a great job lampooning that era, which is Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you think about Hill Valley or whatever the town that Leave it to Beaver was set in. I don't know. Let's say Springfield, because it was probably it's probably where Matt Greening got that for The Simpsons, right? I think it was May, Mayview. Maybe. We'll, we'll need to, we'll need to look it, that up. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. matter. And, you know, I would argue years later, even after Back to the Future, Desperate Housewives did a really good job of spoofing that as well with their sort of suburban enclave, right? Mm-hmm. There's this tremendous economic prosperity. There's a growing middle class. There's all these GIs that are returning from World War II, going to college on the GI Bill. They're starting to settle down. They're starting to have families. So consumerism really begins to take off as all of this war production effort and the United States in general, it turns inward, right? It really, it's like, well, we, everybody needs jobs. Everybody's, we have this, this factory capacity to produce all this stuff. There's all these people here now, like we've paid attention to the rest of the world with World War II. Now it's time to start paying attention to ourselves. And of course, as people settle down as they're want to do, the baby boom starts to happen. Yeah. And so this was uh, post-war, and wasn't it a time of massive innovation and and just sort of a cultural earthquake, if you will, with like Elvis Presley and all of that stuff? Oh, 100%. There are several things that happened. We loosely touched on suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. But what made the suburbs happen? There were two things. The first thing is the highway system. When... Folks like Eisenhower were in Europe and saw how highways were constructed there and how they were being used for military purposes, etc. It dawned on these folks, well, if a world war were to ever come onto American soil, how would we get around? How would, uh, the country's huge. How would we get around? Time to make a highway system here. So that's why we have the interstate mm-hmm. system. It's called the Eisenhower system. And then uh, you need something to drive on these roads, right? So car culture. Think about the history of of car culture you know it was kind of going on during the 20s and then it gets into the depression in the 30s so a lot of people couldn't afford cars and of course like everything else it was really world war ii that got us out of the depression it was the advanced manufacturing that allowed us to make cars better um, after you know figuring things out for the war effort so you have a highway system you have cars driving on them and then they're going from their jobs in the city to their three bedroom two bath half acre yeah out in the burbs yeah. right so so that's part of it now the other big thing and again back to the future did such a great job touching on this is tv right there wasn't oh, yeah. really tv before world war ii and, and it really wasn't that widespread right i mean think about how when people wanted to get news they would either crowd around the radio or they would see movie tone news before a movie <laughs> you know and a lot of that of course was mm-hmm. world war ii propaganda but now as they come back there's tv suddenly and there's stuff that has to go on the tv so there's commercials and companies sponsoring all these different programs that are on on the tv you know for example soap operas are called soap operas because originally they were sponsored by soap companies right Mm-hmm. 
And I Love Lucy was sponsored by Philip Morris. There you go. Perfect. So, so they smoked a lot on I Love Lucy. <laughs> Product placement gets big. I don't know if that was in the con. Yeah, I don't know if that was in the contract or not, but they didn't shy away from it. Yeah, there wasn't the trigger warning before. It was like the only graphic that came up was smoke them if you got them, <laughs> and if and if you if you don't got them, why not? <laughs> if you don't got them, go get them and smoke them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. On the other side of this, right, we have futurism that's happening because basically when we caught all of the uh, German rocket scientists, literally rocket scientists like Werner von Braun, we said, hey, um, tell you what, we can give you the chair or you can come build rockets for us. And and von Braun said, I think I'll build rockets for you guys. That's a great (laughs) idea. I wish I'd thought of it. He starts up. The space program, and and none too soon, right? Because, of course, the Russians, as we shift into battling communism, they launch Sputnik, and the space race starts in earnest, right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Sputnik's out there. We then have cars that are looking very futuristic when you think about tail fins. We've, of course, have talked in our street culture episode, we talked about car culture and these GIs returning with these mechanical skills and putting those to use, modifying cars and everything like this. Then there are things in the realm of science. There's you know, the transistor is being uh, created. So that allows electronics to get much smaller. You know, the radio I was mentioning earlier where people listen to the news, that had vacuum tubes in it. Now suddenly a radio can fit in your hand. It can go with you to the beach. You think about Frankie and Annette and dancing to music on the, mm-hmm. on the beach blanket, right? Mm-hmm. That was a transistor radio. Then there are things like the vaccine for polio. So... Polio was this illness that really threatened a lot of children. And when this vaccine came out, this was very, very liberating uh, in the in the post-World War II era because a lot of folks felt it gave these kids a new lease on life because they could just get this vaccine, never had to worry about polio. Now, in addition to the rise of the U.S. Uh, battling communism, we also had a rise in evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. So those kind of don't seem like they go together, the whole futurism thing and space race, um, innovation, advancements, mm-hmm. and then evangelical Christianity. But when I think about it a little bit more, I'm like, oh, okay, was it that we had... Uh, post-World War II and God was really smiling on the U.S. and that was bringing about this whole kind of new cultural um, conformity, if, if is the right word, maybe? I think that's very valid. I think it's like, yeah, we won. Um, we're the good guys. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we must be doing something right. And also, if you think about it, Sure, Russia was out there, but we were sort of the lone superpower in a lot of ways, and we were the good Mm -hmm. guys. And Mm -hmm. look, hey, Todd, these uh, countries that we bombed back to the Stone Age, we're helping to rebuild them. So how could we be bad people? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a difficult one to unpack. (laughs) You know, yeah, that's a whole other podcast. Uh, 
But, uh, but you get the idea. But the big thing about religion, of course, is they generally don't want people to rock the boat and question too much, right? Right, right. So a lot of sameness, a lot of conformity. I mentioned the Cold War. So there's the Red Scare. There's the looming specter, of course, of the atomic bomb, right? I mean, we all did the duck and cover drills. We all saw the fallout shelter signs on buildings. I mean, it was... Uh, I remember there was a great Onion article in Our Dumb Century, the, the book that I love and that we talked about, where they show a photo of kids doing duck and cover under their desks at school, and the new uh, radiation-proof uh-huh. and A-bomb-proof desks are lauded for their durability. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, it's so great. And then, of course, we we start to segue soon after World War II. I don't think the U.S. ever met a beef we didn't like. We decide we need to go to Korea. We need to start uh, battling communism in Korea. So there's a lot of activity that's going on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, we want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals, the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website or send an email to hello at two designers walk into a bar.com. We read every message we get. Honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now back to the bar. And now, I need to also state clearly that aside from war and aside from atomic bombs, there was a whole group of people that the Leave it to Beaver era really sort of sucked for. And that, of course, was African-Americans. It was it was black people. Right. So yeah, yeah, the yeah, civil yeah. rights movement was starting up in earnest and these pushes against inequality. So you have this consumer culture happening. You have these rules that are being followed. You have a lot of folks who are being told not to question too much and just don't rock the boat and follow the program and everything will be okay. 
And there was really just a certain subset of people who thought all of this was bullshit. Uh, uh, all of what? Well, all of that sort of conformity and change. Around, yeah, the program. Like, the program. The, the man. Okay. Right. Okay. Like, like, don't tell oh, me okay. what to okay. do. Don't tell me how to live my life. Like, let me make my own decisions. Oh. Right. Uh, you know, I love controversy. <laughs> tell me more about. Tell me more about that. So, when you think about the Beats, one of the core things to think about is they reject the sort of standard narrative values. These things that are you're told to value in American culture and post World War II culture. Like this is what's important. Hmm. Okay. Um, standard narrative values. That's like. Uh, Sorry, am I being too academic for you? You might, you might be. Yeah, can okay. you break it down for me a little bit? I'm not sure I fully understand, but but yeah, yeah, yeah. You that. gotta, if you have money, you need to buy these things, and that will make you happy. Oh, right? okay. You have to, and and not if, but you yeah, want yeah, money. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you need yeah. you need money, and you need money because that money will allow you to get stuff, and that stuff means that you know your time is filled doing these things, right? Like watching TV, right? Um, and just really, they didn't feel that self-worth was tied up in how much money you made or what things you owned or just all these kind of signal markers in pop culture. Like, oh, I'm going to start with a Chevy and then I'm going to go to the Buick and then I'm going to go to the Oldsmobile and then I'm going to go to the Cadillac. And that's when my neighbor sees the Cadillac. That's when I've really arrived. <laughs> you know, that that whole thing, yeah, right? Yeah, Those sorts yeah. of co corporate programs. But then... Thinking of going back to religion for a second, these folks also were questioning that. They were questioning their own spirituality. Keep in mind, you know, some of these folks had served in World War II. They'd been overseas. They'd seen the horrors of war. And after you see cities leveled and you stare death in the face, um, you might not think, oh, I think I'll just have a house and just settle down things are much more existential, right? Like, right. why are we here? What's the human condition? So you start to think about that exploration that happens through not only Western religions, but also Eastern religions too. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so that there was a reaction to the rise of Christianity from the beats. Exactly. They were exploring other religions, Eastern religions, as you said, and also, um, they were kind of not buying the whole God is smiling on the U.S. because we're, we're great people because they saw bad things that happened. That, and I think they, they kind of figured out, hmm, maybe we got lucky. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, yeah, that, that's a good one, too, yeah. Right? You know, it's probably an element of chance a little bit, right? So you have this yeah. rejection of, of materialism. Um, you have them thinking about the human condition. Now, there's a couple of other things I want to mention really quickly because, of course, these often get credited to the hippies, but in a lot of ways, uh, the beats really laid the groundwork for the hippies. So, sorry, hippies, mm. but the beats were first with things like uh, self-medicating through psychedelic drugs. <laughs> yes. Right? And then also sexual liberation and exploration, too, right? Oh, okay. Okay. So they were, the beats were getting their freak on and um, the hippies just kind of picked it up. <laughs> right. And ran they with they it, were past right? the playbook, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we already know that Jack Kerouac was 
called the king of the beats, That's not right. the king of the beast, but the king of the beats. And who else were some players in this scene as it was getting started? Yeah, great question. Okay, so yes, Jack Kerouac, definitely the most popular uh, guy. And uh, I say guy, really all of the folks involved in this by and large were men. There were a couple of women. I mentioned one earlier who was hanging around Kerouac when he was reading his review. But by and large, this was a male-dominated thing. Um, so there were two other people, in addition to Kerouac, who were sort of considered the the three legs of the stool, I guess, or the pillars of uh, the beat movement. And those folks are Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs. Sounds familiar. Sounds yeah. like names we've heard before. The definitely. De and, and these jokers really started to figure into pop culture in a major way in the 80s and going into the 90s. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. Oh, okay. Um, so each of these guys, of course, had just like Kerouac with On the Road, they had their own seminal works, right? Because you have to be known for something. So Kerouac's On the Road, as we mentioned earlier, came out in September 57. Allen Ginsberg had an epic poem called Howl that came out a year earlier in 56. And then Burroughs had a book called Naked Lunch that came out a few years later in 1959. All right. All right. So they were and those uh, I've heard of all of those. Those were those were big deals in the literary world, I guess. Yes, absolutely. OK. Now, here's the thing. So. Viking was the publisher that released On the Road. Okay. And apparently, if you read about the original, the scroll, right? The quote-unquote scroll I mentioned earlier, the, the bane of Truman Capote's existence. <laughs> <laughs> when that was turned into Viking, and the they originally looked at it, apparently real names were used, and there was much, much more explicit material in terms of sexual dalliances shall we say okay mm, mm, okay now viking basically said to kerouac they're like look uh if you want to publish this book through us you're gonna have to tone some of this stuff down you're gonna have to take some of it out you're gonna have to change some of these names so if you go back and you read the original uh on the road uh the unedited one that was released much later it's much much more raw apparently oh okay the scroll tells all yes why did viking do this why did they say this well you could argue they were prudish right and they're like hey we want to get this in the hands of middle america they'll never go for this but it turns out they actually had a pretty good reason <laughs> so how the year before and then naked lunch later two years after on the road came out so you have one book that a year earlier was the focus of an obscenity trial. <laughs> oh, okay. Howl. That was Howl, right? Yeah, that was Howl. And then two years later, <laughs> uh, Naked Lunch is a, a focus of another obscenity trial. So they're kind of the, oh, the, okay. the bread on this sandwich. Uh, but Kerouac managed to dodge that bullet by uh, <laughs> listening to his editors a little bit. <laughs> But I, you know, I think with Ginsburg and Burroughs, I think Ginsburg was really adamant about 
his work again it was a poem it's like no you're not going to censor this poem this is my inspiration this is what i wrote about this is how i feel this is it take it or leave it and luckily he found a city lights bookstore he found a publisher named lawrence ferenghetti who uh was willing to publish it as is and take the heat for that and then with burroughs with naked lunch i don't know if uh with how kind of the edges were rounded a little bit with his publisher, what the deal was, or maybe he just didn't give a shit. I don't know, but, <laughs> but, but either way, like that, you know, that book came out also becomes the subject of an obscenity trial. And like anything else, when, uh, stuff is kept from people and there's conversation around it being kept from people. And when you're told it's being kept from you because it's too obscene and you live in middle America, what do you want to do? I want more of it. I got to get it. <laughs> yeah. You just want to know what it is and what it's all about and why so many people yeah, are freaked yeah. out. So naturally, uh, this obscenity trial, not only were was neither book ultimately uh, deemed to be uh, offensive in the courts, but Obviously, the appetite was stoked, and uh, when these books were allowed to be released, they both totally took off, in addition to On the Road. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so all of these works, there's this, they're bohemian, they're hedonists, they're nonconformists, they're spontaneous, so there's all these things going on, and even though each author sort of had their own unique voice, there was kind of this thread, you could argue, running through all of these things. And on the surface, it was kind of appealing. You know, you're rejecting everything. You're out to have a good time with interesting people, blah, 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 right? Like, why wouldn't you want to do this if you were a young person in middle America? It sounds good if you're rich and talented and making money off of a book <laughs> that people want to get. But, <laughs> but for everyone else, they, they need to have a square But for job. everyone else, yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah. whoa. So this was, okay, so so they were, they were consciously aware that they were kind of doing something new and fresh with literature here, and that was starting to affect middle America. Oh, oh definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah 100%. Okay. Now, okay, Todd. When something's popular and middle America is all over it, what tends to happen? Uh, it's only for the squares and the cool people are no longer into it. Yeah, it tends to get co-opted by mainstream America, right? Right, right, right. So it has to be pasteurized in some way. We, it, um, we have to start seeing ads using language like that exactly or so it's madison avenue gets their talons on it and i feel we can say that both being in the industry we're in madison avenue gets uh -huh. its talons on it and and really this is when the beats start to kind of roll their eyes at a lot of what they're seeing because mm -hmm. this is where the beat nicks and the beats kind of the road forks uh, okay. they're not the same thing? Uh, no, not at all. Like the, the beat okay. generation really never even referred to themselves as such, right? It was something that was written okay. down and, but it's never like, it's not like you would go to a bar and, you know, there'd be a card placed in the window tonight, the beat generation, I would say enterprising bars did that <laughs> actually, but, uh, but it wasn't, uh -huh. you know, it wasn't like all these guys in one place, like with this single handle. Oh, okay. So, like, like, like with 
Kurt Cobain never was going around. Yeah, we're we're the grunge generation. Like if you if you have to self proclaim it, then you <laughs> right. ain't it. Yeah, grunge movement in this Seattle bar two nights. <laughs> yeah, yeah two <laughs> nights. One night only. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't like that. But there was this core group of folks. Herbert Hunky was another one of them. In addition to Ginsburg Burroughs, uh, Kerouac, as we talked about, this guy named Lucian Carr. So these guys all met in New York. So they they all met at Columbia University. Some of them were living in New York. Some of them were students. And then they later went to San Francisco. And that's where, um, as I mentioned, Howl was published. City Lights Bookstore is still there today in San Francisco. And that's where uh, Howell was published. And so they then became friends with some people on the West Coast. And this later starts to develop into the San Francisco Renaissance. So this is all happening well off the grid, well outside of mainstream. Like, there isn't like, it's not like the real world. There weren't TV cameras following these guys around, documenting what they were doing. Uh-huh. They were just kind of, they were just kind of doing it. So you have these hangers on that through book reviews or, you know, later through things like um, TV shows, the, the beatnik, you know, again, Madison Avenue and the networks and some movies, they want to capitalize on this and they really start to, I wouldn't even say sanitize it. I, I would say like caricature it. It's like, uh huh. what do you think's perverted? What do you think people like this would be doing? Well, I think they'd be doing this. Okay, well, let's write a movie script about that and just film that. And it really wasn't rooted in a lot of reality, right? Yeah, yeah, because that's what I was thinking. Like the the beatnik is a comical character that we would see in movies and TV at the time. They were uh, the sort of lazy, uninspired, spoken code right, almost, right. and they were they were sort of seen as uh, the person you didn't want to be. The advertisers and uh, and the networks and mainstream media. What they were really trying to do was downplay and and round the edges of these revolutionary folks because they're really starting to pick up momentum right there's a lot of energy behind what they were doing but they were just doing it they were sort of being their authentic selves in in both good and bad ways right but if i'm middle america and i see this as much of a threat as let's say communism this is odd they they probably are communists right this is just another plot yeah yeah so If I can satirize and make caricatures of these folks and water it down and make it seem approachable and comical, then suddenly I, at least in my opinion of, you know, square or mainstream media, I'm I'm removing power from these guys. Right, right, right. I'm making right, fun right. of them. You're lowering the threat of to middle America, and they're just, they're just kind of goofy character, non-threatening kids, man. Exactly, yeah. And like, who wants to go join that? Like, ah, they're just a bunch of losers. Why would you want to go do that, right? It's like, because, of course, America needs more people in their factories. They need people earning money. They need people buying stuff, so. Yeah, yeah. And then, as I mentioned, so... This obviously sticks around, right? This idea of uh, pushing against materialism, exploring religion, all of these different things, it sticks around and, and sort of, you know, morphs in the 60s, right? So the hippies, as I mentioned earlier, they've really got this playbook and they 
started to expand on it, um, especially in places like San Francisco that had, you know, in Golden Gate Park, they had the human being in the 60s. And I'm sure um, I know we're going to talk about some other eras and uh, I'm sure the 60s figures into some of the stuff that you're going to be covering. Oh, right, right, right. I was just thinking about that um, as we're talking about counterculture, which is kind of interesting. It, that sort of is the golden thread that ties a lot of our stuff together. Yeah. It's just different points of counterculture. But yeah, I'm going to be talking about Andy Warhol and the factory scene coming up. And as you would imagine, counterculture plays a huge role in that. I wouldn't necessarily say hippies, but you know, I think that the beats were the, they lit the fuse. For yeah, them. yeah. And fire can burn in a number of different directions, right? You know, it's not right. a linear thing. So just to wrap up our conversation for this episode, I want to talk about two quick things as we um, think about the 60s and think about the lasting influence of the beats a little bit here. So one is Ginsburg, Allen Ginsburg. He definitely made the switcheroo. Um, Kerouac was really resentful of the hippies. He thought they were idiots. And there's actually, we'll put this on our episode page, there's a video of him on Firing Line, <laughs> William F. Buckley Jr.'s show. And uh, he is grumpy, and he's probably half a bottle in before he even gets on the air. <laughs> Just like us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's reading the riot act to the, some hippies on this. Like, he's none too pleased with the hippies kind of stealing the beat's thunder. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted to mention was another one of his good friends, Neil Cassidy, who was his partner in crime for On the Road. He ended up... Okay, Todd, I'm going to quiz you again. I quizzed you at the top of the episode. Can I quiz uh, you one okay. more time? All right. Okay. We, why not? Let's go Okay. Does the name Ken Kesey sound familiar to you in any way? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know details, but I think... Uh, something with some the Merry Pranksters or something like that. I don't, and I don't know where the Merry Pranksters like they just travel around doing shit to people or I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. That's about as much as I know. <laughs> yeah, it's like like a '60s version of punked. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. I don't I don't know if that would fly on Jeopardy if, as an answer, but <laughs> maybe you can help yeah. me out here. So he he's probably most famous for writing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, of course, which later became... Oh, yeah. okay. But he also, you're exactly right, he had his bus, the bus was actually named Further, and he had his bus of merry pranksters who were exploring, right? Really, it was sort of on the road 2.0. So they're driving around the U.S., uh -huh. they're dropping acid, they're doing all kinds of things like that. So who is the bus driver for Further, for Ken Kesey's bus? Uh, is that one of the beat authors? <laughs> yeah, uh, sort of. Yeah, I could have said that better, couldn't I? Is that one of the beat authors? <laughs> <laughs> it's Neil Cassidy. It's Jack Kerouac's sidekick. Hey. So while uh, Kerouac is on TV literally railing against the hippies, you have his buddy, <laughs> Neil Cassidy, tooling around with a bus full of hippies <laughs> causing trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the whole thing was kind of crazy. Um, but I thought that was just uh, just a really interesting <laughs> way to, to wrap this up. Starts to tie it all together, Absolutely. doesn't it? Uh, so that's interesting then. Um, so there's a lot to unpack, I'm sure, with beat culture. Oh, gosh, yeah. What can we look forward to 
next uh, in this series. So we talked a little bit about the what, and obviously when you go into the what, you're also talking about the who, at least. Not the band, the who. I mean, maybe, but yeah, okay. I, did, I didn't yeah. mean to well, excite maybe, you. Yeah. <laughs> but I think they're mods. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> we got to get our scooters. Um, but getting deeper into the the who and also the where, because Todd, when, when I know when a scene is set, you love the where. Right, I do. I do. I love a scene. I love a creative scene. So I'll tell you what, let's talk about that the next time we're around the bar. And uh, hey, here's a thought. And I know you're going to really be astonished when this is coming from me. But uh, Uh don't forget to tip the bartender tonight. And your favorite podcast host. Oh, that's even better. I like that more. Even better. Yeah. Tip everybody. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, uh, we'll give you a tip, listener, and that's uh, tune into the next episode coming very, very soon. Ah, I love it. All right, till next time. See ya. And I'm Joe, and and we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show, or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.